0: Inside this craft are a number of frozen human embryos. I've modified your body so you're capable of bringing them to term once you land on Kepler-22b.
1: I don't understand.
0: You will raise these children to be atheists. The new world that you start won't have the same problems that ended our world here on Earth.
2: I'm Holly Fry, and welcome to Raised by Wolves, the podcast, where groundbreaking minds discuss some of the real life research behind the science featured in HBO Max's new sci fi series, Raised by Wolves. First off, obviously, episodes four and five of Raised by Wolves have shown us that nothing is exactly what it appears and that we cannot trust anyone or anything on this strange planet. I really love that just as you're wrapping your brain around one thing on this show, a whole other problem or factor in the story is revealed. It's like this big whoosh, and then you have to reconsider everything that you believed or everything that you thought you understood about what was going on. And one of the big examples in these most recent episodes is how humans went to Kepler-22b because it was a place that could potentially support life, but they didn't know <laughs> that it already had inhabitants and a history all its own that had not even been considered. But while Raised by Wolves's plot is full of twists, turns, and very unpredictable reveals... I hope that this podcast can at least help you understand some of the real-life tech, science, and history that inspired the series. And given how the hostile terrain around Mother, Father, and the Settlement has coughed up a lot of surprises, we figured this would probably be a good time to discuss Kepler-22b, the very real planet on which the show takes place and which scientists have postulated could support human life. While much of the topography, flora, and fauna on 22b is fictionalized in the show, the planet itself, as I just said, is very real. Discovered in 2009, it appears to exist in a safe Goldilocks zone approximate to the star it orbits, Kepler, similar to that of Earth in relation to our own sun. This has led scientists to posit that it might be enough like our own that we could ostensibly someday break our lease here on Earth and move there. Although, as Raised by Wolves points out, the excitement behind that possibility may be due in part to how our own planet looks and feels after we have so thoroughly ravaged its environment. This brings up a bigger issue here. Can humanity make it to another planet and start over? And an even bigger, more important question should we? Maybe what we've done to Mother Earth isn't as dramatic as the world that we see in Raised by Wolves before humanity abandons it for Kepler-22b, but it is safe to say we're stretching natural resources to their limits. If we were given a second chance with a fresh Earth, who's to say we wouldn't do the same thing over again? Before we dive into the science that will help us tackle this massive question head on, we thought we'd first take a look at how Kepler 22b and the possibility of life on other planets became such a core concept in Raised by Wolves. Thankfully, show creator Aaron Guzikowski has returned to the podcast to provide a little insight. Along with the help of visionary director and executive producer Ridley Scott, Aaron first brought Kepler-22b to life on the page, imagining in his scripts for Raised by Wolves what the planet would look like 125 years from now, assuming humankind would be capable of traveling these 600 light years to get there. We briefly spoke with Aaron about his interpretation of the mysterious real-life planet and the personal experiences that inspired those hypotheses. Aaron, we have to talk about Kepler-22b. Yes. A lot. (laughs) This is like an area of like rabid fascination for me. Okay, so first, when you decided that you were going to set Raised by Wolves on Kepler-22b, how much did you know about the planet itself?
0: Not too much. I wanted to find a Goldilocks planet that was real, but obviously is so far away that we really don't have a good idea as to what it really looks like, other than the fact that it's close enough to a sun we may be able to live there without any technology. And so as I started looking through all of these planets, all these different options, this at the time they were saying, this may be the one, Kepler-22b. The only problem is it's 600 light years away. No idea how one would get there or let alone how a lot of people would get there, but it's there. And I really like that idea that it's real, but it's so far away, you know, you can't really see what's on it and you can kind of just imagine that it's this, you know, sort of thing.
2: So, obviously, this captured your imagination. How much of the Kepler-22b in the show is informed by actual planetary science, like the research that you did around it, versus how much did you just give yourself free reign to create and lean on the fact that we don't really know what the surface of that planet is?
0: I tried to do a little bit of both. I tried to give myself free reign but i also wanted to try and keep it relatively grounded i wanted everything to at least be possible and within the realms of possibility with a planet like this and you know beyond that i definitely kind of opened it up in terms of it's not all science based for sure but it is all theoretically possible based on what we know it is just as possible as you know any other theory about what those planets may or may not be like and especially with working with ridley you know he likes things to be credible what would the ship look like? How would it work? You know, what are the propulsion systems? You know, what is this over here? What does that do? Why is that there? It's not just kind of like, Oh, let's put a bunch of stuff over there. Cause it looks cool. It's like, he's really trying to build it out, you know, making it real. And I think, you know, the same approach when we were doing the planet and how things were going to look, it's the same sort of thing. And always, I think looking, you have to look at earth and you keep looking back at what we know about this planet. And really there's so much about it that we don't really think about that much because, We're in this kind of modern age. So just thinking about this planet in different ways allows you to kind of really extrapolate it and say, okay, this could be another version of what a Goldilocks planet could look like.
2: Now, I like that you bring this up because why do you think we are, as a species, so fascinated by this idea that we could all move to another planet?
0: It drives me crazy. I think it's this thing we have in us. We like the idea of the blank page starting over. Like if you have people, they've been scribbling on a piece of paper for a thousand years and you're like, well, here you you go. Can you make sense of this? Do something to it. Or would you like to just start over again? Here's a blank, beautiful new piece of paper. And you start on that. And and that's very exciting. It's just so much easier. We're, We're in this sort of like Christmas lights tied up in knots society, you know, of like hundreds of thousands of years of problems you know, that all have to be dealt with. And when we think of a new planet, we just kind of think of like, oh, it's all new. We're just there. We're going to set stuff up and have fun. We're going to be on a new planet and we're not taking any of that crap with us that we did on Earth, which is complete bullshit. It would be exactly the same, except a thousand times worse. Like, why are we trying to get to Mars? There's no atmosphere there. It's a husk. It's like the remnants of what Earth will be like a hundred thousand years. from. We're trying to get to like the burned house down the block. We live in this mansion (laughs) with, like, a lot of problems. There's a lot of people arguing in the mansion, and we have issues. But it's beautiful, and there's lots of possibilities and stuff. And then there's this burnt-out husk. You can see it with your binoculars. Look at that. It looks burnt and empty, but there's no one there. We could start over again. But also, too, there's, like, no way to get there. We're not getting anyone to Mars anytime soon. And if we do, it'll be, like, five people, you know what I mean? And then, like, maybe five more. It just drives me nuts because I wish we would just put all that effort into fixing this planet. Does anyone get the fact that we haven't really found an alternative Earth that is anywhere near this? I mean, 600 light years away is is 600 light years away. I mean, that's a really far way away. But I mean, I love the idea of starting over again. But I think in real life, we just have to fix our broken planet. As boring and unsexy as that is, we just have to roll up our sleeves and fix it. There aren't other planets to go to. That's not for us. Maybe for the great-great-grandchildren get to do that. But we have to, like, clean up this mess here. If there's anything to take away from, hopefully it's that. That if you go to a new place, you take all that shit with you.
2: There is a weird romanticism with, oh, in a new place, we could project manage it much better. And it's right. Be a, exactly. Yeah.
0: And we'll all get along. It'll be fine. We'll all agree.
2: So <laughs> is it safe to say that if you were given the chance to leave Earth, you would not take it?
0: I would not take it. No, I'm terrified of space. I would not want to go to space. When I saw Alien as a kid, I'm like, that's it. Space is terrifying. You know, it's unknowable. It's impenetrable. It's horrifying. Why would anyone want to go to space? I don't understand. Like, This is like a dreamland compared to like, that's a vacuous nothing. Why would you want to go there? I'd love to send a probe into space and watch from the comfort of my living room and look at what it finds. But no, I wouldn't want to go. I'm too big of a wimp for all of that kind of uh, exploration, (laughs) (laughs) but have nothing but the greatest respect for anyone who would. I think that's fantastic. (laughs)
2: Like gravity's working just fine for me. (laughs) That's right.
0: Absolutely. I'm loving it.
2: So... In the show, you have essentially made Kepler-22b almost like a character unto itself. How much does that really define the core concept of Raised by Wolves, and how much does it inform the storytelling?
0: Quite a lot. I kind of think of the planet almost like a haunted house a little bit, you know, in terms of the fact that it has a past that we don't know anything about. It has lots of secrets. You know, the whole show kind of runs on secrets. I think if you arrive on a new planet... With very little tech, you know, you're not able to orbit it and kind of analyze it. You're just thrown into it. You can only see what you can see. You can only get to wherever you can walk to. And then you have to just start making assumptions. Like if I was just dropped in California and I'm like, okay, this is Earth, I guess. I'm looking around. It seems pretty sunny and, you know, there's an ocean over there. I wouldn't even imagine that there are places like Antarctica or what have you. But there are, you know, there's all these different things and I love that idea, too, is that you can be in one region of the planet that's going to be totally different than this region over here. And because they have so little tech, they can't see any of this stuff coming in terms of what's on the other side of the planet. What if we go over here? I like that kind of haunted house aspect of it, you know, that it's just similar to Earth as it would be, you know, if we didn't know everything we knew. It would be that same sort of thing, like what's a bear? All of these things, a uh, mystery. Yeah.
2: Aaron pointed out the double-sided issue of life on other planets. On the one hand, he's set raised by wolves on the possible second Earth because he, like so many of us, can't stop fantasizing about starting over. On the other hand, very few of us know how we could actually get there and none of us know for sure what we would find. Maybe instead of getting ahead of ourselves and wondering how we could send humans or androids and fetuses 600 light years into space... We should, as Aaron suggests, focus instead on fixing the planet that we have. After all, how possible is settling on another planet, really? Thankfully, with us today is one of the few human beings on Earth with the scientific background to answer some of these questions for us. Sarah Seeger is a professor of planetary science, physics, and aeronautics and astronautics at MIT. Professor Seeger's work focuses heavily on exoplanets, planets like Kepler-22b, that orbit stars similar to our sun and might be similar to Earth. As part of the former Kepler team, Sarah has a knowledge of 22b that the average Raised by Wolves viewer would need a decade to digest. And she is not holding her breath for humanity to get there anytime soon. Here's what she had to tell us after checking out the take on Raised by Wolves of the planet that she helped discover. So Raised by Wolves exists in a future version of Earth where exoplanetary travel is basically at our fingertips. For an exoplanetary biologist
3: today, though, what does that job actually entail? Well, for an exoplanet scientist today, we're busy finding planets. And we don't know much about them, actually. So sadly to say, we do have to rely on shows like Raised by Wolves to capture what the planets might actually be like.
2: Now, you were a member of the Kepler team. So when you worked on that and you're looking for these kind of planets that you're talking about, what is that process like and what are your obstacles that you're encountering in that effort?
3: Well, the way that Kepler works, and the Kepler Space Telescope, by the way, is now retired. It worked for many years and it's done now. And there's a new Kepler. We can get to that later. But Kepler found planets by the method we call the transit technique, if a planet and star are aligned just so, so that the planet goes in front of the star, as seen by the telescope, the star light will drop by a tiny, tiny amount. Very tiny. And Kepler observed hundreds of thousands of stars looking for a tiny, tiny drop in brightness that might indicate that there's a planet in that system going in front of the star.
1: Now close your eyes. Close your eyes. I want you to think back to a time before humans gained their sight, when you were all just blind, simple organisms floating in the vast oceans of the Earth. The warmth of the star drawing you to the surface.
2: The show's frame of reference for this, it kind of posits that 22b is like a second Earth. But really, that's just due to its position relative to its host star. But how much do we actually know about the specifics of Kepler-22b?
3: Well, we don't know much about it, so it is a good, a good example to talk about. We know Kepler-22b's size. It's over two times Earth's size. 2.4, to be specific. We know that kepler-22b orbits a sun-like star the star it's not quite a twin to our sun but it's close and we know the period or the orbit of kepler-22b it takes about 290 days to go around its star and as you already said holly we know that the planet is in the so-called goldilocks zone as heated by the star the planet is not too hot not too cold but has just the right temperature for life
2: and my understanding is that one of the the difficulties in figuring out exactly what it might be like on Kepler-22b is that we don't have a similarly sized planet in our solar system
3: to compare it to, correct? We don't, we don't. And one of Kepler's major discoveries was that the most common planet out there that we can find so far is a lot like Kepler-22b. It's between two to three times the size of Earth. And we don't know how those planets formed. We don't know much about them. And we don't have one in our solar system. I feel like once we crack this,
2: we'll suddenly have like so much more data to just analyze all of space in that regard
3: and all of these other solar systems. Yeah, so one thing, like speaking of challenges, we'd love to be able to measure a planet mass because with mass and size, size gives you volume, mass and volume give you density. And with an average density of the planet, we would know if it was rocky, like it's depicted in Raced by Wolves, or we'd know if it's not rocky. Because a lot of planets of that size that do have a mass measurement and a density measurement, they're very, very lightweight, too lightweight to be rocky planets. So Kepler-22b was originally discovered in
2: 2009 by your team. So between 2009 and now, about 11 years...
3: How much more actual practical information have we gained about it? Well, in terms of learning about Kepler-22b, we haven't learned very much. We can call the field of exoplanets an embarrassment of riches. We have so many planets. And so we pick and choose which ones to spend our precious telescope resources on to get more information. And because Kepler-22b orbits a star that's pretty far away it's not really bright enough for us to unleash our telescope time and power to study it more. So it's kind of on the back burner for a while until we get better telescopes. Gotcha. But the field itself has transformed amazingly. So in those 11 years, finding planets by the transit technique has literally become standard operating procedure. Like, it's just incredible to see how the field has changed and how, like, the software is standard, the procedures are standard... And it's just amazing how many planets we can find thanks to Kepler's pioneering efforts.
2: This also brings up something that I really wanted to talk about because I feel like I'm I'm in some ways potentially contributing to a problem. I, like many other laymen, we get so excited when we hear about discoveries like this, and that there have been planets that are potentially habitable out there. And it sometimes gets really, really hyped by the media, and we talk about things as like second Earth. But when you hear that kind of excitement, do you get a little bit cringy or concerned about the public perception when these announcements go out that they're not really getting the science and they might be muddling the
3: actual message a little bit? I love that the public loves exoplanets. And it's true, the message does get muddled. And we have a joke among us scientists. We say, according to the media, an Earth-like planet has been discovered again and again and <laughs> again. <laughs> Even though everyone knows we can't yet travel to another exoplanet, it's hard to communicate to people that this is not just a decade-long problem, it's a generational, many generations, scientific endeavor.
2: Well... Digestible? Yes, go on.
1: Favorable composition? Yes. Some caloric value. So it could work. We can eat it.
2: It's going to work. It's really going to work.
1: Trace levels of hydrocyanide. It's toxic. <gasps>
2: Raised by Wolves, of course, because it is part of this almost romanticized concept of Kepler-22b as a secondary Earth, it has in the show water, edible plant life, potentially edible animal life, breathable oxygen. What is the reality that we would actually find all of those things on one of these planets that we've
3: identified as potentially habitable? The scientific answer is we'd prefer to wait and answer that question like 10 years from now when we actually have data. (laughs) But we like to think that the chance that the planet has water is really high because hydrogen is very common, you know, oxygen is very common and those together make water. And there's a lot of water and ice everywhere in planetary systems that are forming. So that's all good. But for the planet to have oxygen, life needs to have already got a hold to do photosynthesis to expel oxygen as a waste product from harnessing the sun's energy. And that one we're not so sure about. Our own Earth didn't have oxygen for its first, like, few billion years. And so it kind of just depends on that planet history and whether life made that leap to, like, extract that energy from its sun.
2: To kind of make this point about how we're still figuring out what, other exoplanets are really capable of in terms of supporting life as compared to our own. If an astronomer from another culture far away in space were to look at our solar system, how would they perceive it in terms of
3: which planets were potentially habitable? Well, first of all, if they have the techniques that we have existing today, they could see Jupiter. They might have seen a signal of Earth, but just barely, And it might've been such a weak signal that imagine they would have tossed it into the trash pile for planets. (laughs) But if they have the kind of telescopes that we're hoping to build, they could not only find Earth, but they would see that Earth had water vapor in the atmosphere and oxygen. Now, oxygen shouldn't be in our atmosphere. It is incredibly reactive. And if they see we have that much oxygen, we have 20% by volume of our atmospheres filled with oxygen, they'll know something's going on. They'll be very suspicious. And they should be able to deduce that there's a like 99.9% chance that there's life on the planet creating that oxygen.
2: Would there be any potential for them to have a false sense of possibility for any of the other planets in our solar system to support
3: life? Well, our sister planet Venus is a really interesting case study because Venus has permanent, highly reflective clouds that block any information about its atmosphere. So they could find Venus, and they would calculate that it's kind of right on the inner edge of the habitable zone, and they might suspect that one could host life. But in fact, not so much.
1: (laughs) Animals of some kind? We've been here for 12 years. How could we just be encountering them now? A Good question. I would study their remains if you left any. We thought we knew this region and all its dangers, but we don't.
2: We see in the show Kepler-22b, of course, primarily what we have seen thus far, takes place in this really harsh desert expanse There's hints of a tropical zone somewhere near the equator. The entities and the flora and fauna that we discover there are alien, but of course they are based very much on those on Earth, right? There is this sense that there are reptiles that have been there historically and that they grow space yams there, essentially, and there is stone and there is water. What is the actual likelihood that the kinds of things formed from you know, oxygen, water, et cetera, on another planet, in another system, would have that level of similarity
3: with ours. We have actually thought about this, mostly for fun and not for serious work. (laughs) But we think it really has to do with the planets, what the planet is like. Like, it's gravity, for example. Like, you know those grainy movies of people on the moon and they're kind of bouncing around because it's very easy to move. If there's a planet that has a huge surface gravity, it'd be nearly impossible to walk. And in that case, we imagine there'd be life like with giant elephant legs, very low to the ground. Similarly, and even for Kepler-22b, we don't know, imagine if a planet has a massive atmosphere. So it's kind of dark at the surface most of the time. We have imagined there could be birds with giant wings that fly high and do photosynthesis using the sun's energy that they can only really get high in the atmosphere. So if the planet is a lot like Earth, it's certainly... I'm just speculating here, but we could imagine some trees and animals that move like they do here on Earth.
2: Gravity has so much to do with the equation, though. <laughs> really, in your head, because you have a handle on on where we're at and where we will potentially be down the road, you know, in a decade, two decades, et cetera, how likely is it that we could actually live on
3: a planet like Kepler-22b eventually? Well, Kepler-22b isn't one of our favorites. It's so big and most of the planets the size of Kepler-22b don't have a solid surface as we know it. So we would have to generate like giant airships, like air pods, where we'd be floating around in the atmosphere. So that one's not our favorite, but suffice to say that there are so many planets out there and we have evidence that every star has planets. And we're just trying to find rocky planets around stars that are very close to our sun.
2: While the Kepler Space Telescope that discovered Kepler-22b, the planet featured in raised by wolves, is no longer active, you mentioned earlier that there's a new Kepler out there. I assume that you were talking about TESS, the Transiting
3: Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Can you tell us about that mission? TESS is an MIT-led NASA mission, and it launched in April 2018. It's finished its prime mission already. So TESS does what Kepler did. It's looking at lots of stars, It's looking at hundreds of thousands to millions of stars a month. And it has 20,000 specially chosen stars a month that get monitored relatively high cadence. And TESS's goal is to find exoplanets transiting nearby bright stars. So while Kepler was very pioneering, its stars tend to be hundreds of light years away. TESS's stars would be tens to like 100 light years away. And in particular, TESS is red sensitive, it's sensitive to red colors because its sweet spot in Discovery space is red dwarf stars. They're very different from our Sun, very different from Kepler-22b's host star. The planet in the Goldilocks zone is quite close to the star. So they're very different, but they're nearby, and they're ones that are bright enough that we can follow up. TESS's goal overall is to leave a legacy catalog. Imagine, if you will, the addresses of every planet orbiting a nearby star that it can discover.
2: I instantly think of, like, William and Caroline Herschel writing their, like, lists of comets and stars and what they would think of all of this. It's so amazing.
3: Yes, yes, it is. And so I actually just stepped down from a major leadership role on TESS. And it sounds like a crazy job, but my team's job was to find all the planet candidates in the data and make them available to the community so that anyone who knows what they're doing can download the data and look for planets. I was just going to ask you who picks those
2: the, those potential places where Tess will focus, and
3: now you have answered it. Well, the computer actually looks at all stars that are being monitored and sorts through all of them and finds the ones that show a transit signal. And then more computer programs narrow that down to ones that are most likely to be planet candidates. And finally, a small group of humans actually manually inspect the data and select them. So nature chooses it for us, but we hope we're clever enough to find the best ones.
2: I love it. I know this is, again, still a bit off, but if everything were to go according to plan with Tess, when could we expect to start seeing kind of
3: exciting information from it, at least when it hits the public sphere? So Tess has already been in the news many, many times. It has found lots of planets. Tess has found a planet in the Goldilocks zone of its host star. Not like Kepler-22b, though. The host star is this small red dwarf star. We're still stuck on a bit of the same problem Kepler had, where we can know the planet size, maybe the planet mass, and the orbit. But that's it. And that's why TESS's goal is to leave a legacy catalog of planets we can follow up later and study their atmospheres and answer some of the kinds of questions we've talked about. I
2: love it. I hope we also get lots of cool fiction from people's brains being sparked by all of these discoveries.
1: What is most important is that you do not try and leave the settlement. I know you're all very curious about the planet, but if you run off on your own, you'll only end up starving if you don't freeze to death first. Once you've become acclimated, we'll migrate to the tropical zone where survival will be easier, freeing you to concentrate on building... A new, peaceful, atheistic civilization.
2: (laughs) So, Raised by Wolves does open with this future of humanity kind of playing out on Kepler-22b so that we can colonize it and keep the species alive, but... As an exoplanetary scientist who is looking for these planets, how much of your work actually would center on that goal, this idea of us eventually going to these places? Do you see your work as one step
3: towards exploration and potentially even relocation one day? Well, the strict scientific answer to that is, no, we don't see us going to another star planet system. But my personal answer is, yes, it's always in the back of my mind that I dream of the future, when we somehow do figure out how to get to another star and planet system. But, you know, for us imagining that, we do favor stars that are much, much closer to Earth. Because Kepler-22, it's quite far away. It's like hundreds of light years away. And there are planetary systems that are closer, like they're just a few light years away. Now, those host stars are much smaller than the sun and they're very strange. But we're kind of thinking about distance in the back of our minds.
0: Look, this settlement has been here for years.
1: The only way they could have gotten here so fast is if they traveled in a small craft with no life support systems. No live humans aboard,
0: just frozen embryos and robots.
2: Now, I'm glad you brought that up because this show offers up an opportunity to explore this fictional world with an Ark-style ship making this journey roughly 600 light years to 22B that's a trip that at least in the fictionalized version takes a little over a decade in stasis pods how completely fictional is that have these things been discussed in the scientific community and what it might take and how long it would take for a human to actually travel and what the feasibility
3: is well one thing i loved about the series is no matter how close or far we do have to go in some kind of stasis So I did love how they had the embryos and they had the androids. That was really, really good. Okay, I kind of hate to break it to you, but if the star is 600 light years away, the fastest that known physics could get us there is 600 years. Because we don't have any way to conceive of going faster than the speed of light. But hey, I mean, Star Trek, Star Wars, they all went (laughs) faster than the speed of light. So When we think about humans eventually exploring another
2: planet, How much are we trying to plan for all possible dangers that we might meet? Obviously, we want to be ready and not have it be just sort of an exercise in futility of like, well, we got here and we lived five minutes. But how do you even track and prepare for all of the possibilities
3: that we aren't even aware of yet? It's such a great question. I mean even when we can detect gases like oxygen or carbon dioxide it'll be very very hard to pinpoint the exact level you know how it seems like every year we read about people who die on mount everest because they're running out of air they're running out of oxygen and so just a small amount less oxygen our brains go to mush so we'd have to have some automated sensor if i like imagine this for fun imagine that our spacecraft as it gets closer and closer to the planet it could sense what's there more carefully, and it could actually tell us exactly how much is there. But I imagine a future, not where there's just embryos going, but if you can get to this other planet, honestly, and set everything up, we should be able to, by then, genetically engineer the embryos so they can withstand whatever we find on the planet or even print out embryos when we get there. Ooh... That is a fascinating possibility. The biologists will kill me, by the way, if they're listening. (laughs) And one really amazing thing about working in the field of exoplanets, I have this phrase to say that the line between what is mainstream science and what is considered completely crazy out there, that line is constantly shifting. So like 25, 30 years ago, if you, Holly, like if you were a scientist working on exoplanets, people wouldn't take you seriously. The giggle factor. They would just laugh at you like, what? What are you doing? Like, that's just, no, that's impossible. Well, so recently something happened that shifted this line towards, can we ever not yet travel elsewhere, but could we ever send any kind of spacecraft to another star system? And there's a project called Starshot. Starshot is sponsored by the Breakthrough Foundation, and they invested $100 million. That's a lot of money, but it's not enough, actually. And their idea is to send up thousands of little tiny space chips and they would deploy a solar sail. And an enormous ground-based bank of lasers at like 100 gigawatt power would accelerate these little tiny space ships to about a 20th the speed of light. And they would take two decades to get to the nearest star system. They'd zoom by, snap a few photos, and send those images back to Earth. That's so cool. Captain. Are you enjoying yourself? Uh,
1: Excuse us. Apologies. You misunderstand me. It pleases me to see a man of war bringing joy back into his life. Our new Eden will never know war. We must master happiness
2: now. It's a new chapter. Praise be to Saul. So now that we're thinking about this in slightly more realistic terms, let's say we get to the point where we're pretty confident we can do this.
3: Even if we can go to other planets, should we be going to other planets? I mean, that's a great question. And we'd have to start thinking about what we do here in our own solar system. Even though we haven't found life yet, NASA has a planetary protection office. That's what it's called, planetary protection and their job is to make sure we don't contaminate even planets in our own solar system. Depending on whether the space mission is a lander or an orbiter, there's different levels of sterilization that you'd have to put your spacecraft through. So probably we'd have to build on what we're already doing for our own solar system.
2: How how often, I should say, are you kind of, you know sitting with your thoughts and contemplating these possibilities when really you find yourself down the rabbit hole of the ethics of the whole thing? I mean, even something like what you brought up, which is a really fun idea of like embryos sort of being created in situ on the planet's surface once we
3: get there. How do you think about all of this as you're you're going about your work? Well, it's so far in the future for us to imagine sending humans to an exoplanet that it doesn't come up from my work every day. I do see it amongst colleagues who are struggling to understand CRISPR, this genetic editing technique and what they should do there. So I definitely think it's a problem, but we can leave that for the future generations to worry about in this case. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for spending this
2: time with me. I feel at least 10% smarter. Thanks, Holly. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode, which, as it turns out, has revealed that we still do have a long way to go before we'll know how accurate Raised by Wolves is in depicting Kepler-22b. Then again, maybe by the time future generations have mastered the technology to get us there, they will have come up with a way to save our own planet. Anyway, as the show continues and more about Kepler-22b and the Earth expats living there are revealed, you will surely have a lot more questions about the scientific and technological concepts explored on the show. But not to worry, I will still be here getting the scoop from the experts each week. Thanks so much to Aaron Guzikowski for stopping by and to Sarah Seeger for chatting with me about planetary atmospheres, space travel, and how far we have to go physically and technologically to find a new home. Raised by Wolves, the podcast is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio, hosted by me, Holly Fry. The podcast is produced by Ethan Fixell, written and researched by Chris Crovaton, and engineered, edited, and mixed by James Foster. If you have not already subscribed, rated, or reviewed Raised by Wolves, the podcast, please do so on the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to watch the series itself on HBO Max with new episodes available to stream on Thursdays.